USA, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. It's good to see you guys as always. And we actually have a, a show I'm pretty excited about. I got a chance to talk to one of my favorite legal authors, Scott Tarot. Um, he has a new book coming out. And I got to ask him questions about the new book, but also fangirl out just a little bit about the first book of his that I ever read that I think a lot of lawyers love. It's 1L. And it's like a it's a nonfiction book about what it's like to be a new law student at Harvard Law. Really freaked me out before I went to law school. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I haven't I haven't read that book, but I but I I know it's reputation is sort of a formative text for a lot of young law students. Yeah, it really gives you sort of a window into that world, which is why Mm -hmm. I like it so much. But it also got me thinking about how we've often on the show given our takes on legal songs and and, uh, legal movies. What about legal books? Do you guys have any that are among your favorites? I work yeah. for a I work for a legal news website, so I just read about the law all day. <laughs> I don't really have. I, I would say when I get home for like leisure reading, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty tapped out on this whole law thing. That's that's fair enough. You can you can consider these some recommendations then, though. I have a couple. I'll do one fiction, one nonfiction. First, nonfiction uh, is the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, ah. who is a civil rights attorney. Uh, that is the book about uh, a, a case that he worked on getting this guy in Alabama off of death row. Um, it, it took up like years of his life. It was made into a very subpar film last year that was just kind of boring and rope. But the book is excellent. Um, so if you if the movie looked interesting to you, just skip that and read the book. It's like less than 400 pages. You can breeze through it in a weekend for fiction. I turned the Wayback Machine way back, um, and I'm actually a huge fan of the Charles Dickens novel Bleak House. Uh, oh, have either yeah. of you read that book? Yeah, so yeah. That is, I've forgotten how... Yeah, that's legal. Sure. Well, that is... Yeah, that, that deals with an estate case um, that takes up like generations of people's lives in London. This guy left behind sort of conflicting versions of his will, and there's like a, a decades-long battle in the chancery court over it to the extent that like you know generations of like lawyers take on the case and die in the course of doing right. it and pass it on to their kids and it becomes this like interminable slog but it's actually very fun to read because it's sort of dickens wrote it as sort of like a thumbing of his nose at the entire sort of chancery court system which he found to be pretty absurd and like a lot of the dickens novels it was serialized it was published in like Yep. periodicals so like it actually does move along at a pretty good clip so uh yeah i, like I have a, a couple of takes on this too i mean i obviously said 1l is one of my favorites that i read mm-hmm. right before law school um but i also i mean i love pulpy john grisham books like i remember I read reading the firm books. as a teenager and thinking that was just the best mm-hmm. um and then i think the one that when um alex you and i were talking about this and bill we were talking about this the first thing that popped to my head is, I mean, it sounds maybe a little rote to say this, but To Kill a Mockingbird. That's just the best <laughs> Oh, sure. It's now been featured on both our movie podcast yeah. and our book podcast. Yes, yeah, because the book was great, and the adaptation into a movie is equally wonderful. So I just mm-hmm. feel like, I mean, most people have probably already read that, but it's a good one to revisit. I hadn't read it in, a, in many years and then picked it back up again last year or so. And yeah, yeah it's it's great to revisit. Well, um, so you know, take those for what they're worth. We're not we're, we're not going to pretend to be the most well-read people in the world, but those are some recommendations for you. Um, we do have an interesting show, like you said. We have Amber's interview with Scott Turow later on, uh, but we do have some news to get out of the way. Bill, you want to take it away here? 
Brand new uh, today. It's piping hot. <laughs> um, we saw a big ruling today um, in the, it's sort of a long running legal case, uh, series of cases against uh, President Trump claiming that he is violating the Constitution's emoluments clause uh, mm. by profiting from his businesses. He very famously did not divest uh, from his private businesses the same way that some of his predecessors that all of his predecessors had done in recent years um and it has led to this sort of novel series of constitutional questions i'll admit bill i've kind of lost track of where we are with all of this i mean i remember uh being reintroduced to what the emoluments clause even is years ago in his presidency when this started to become an issue and lawsuits were filed but i don't know where we are now can you just kind of orient me tell me where we are in the case yeah, these cases were filed early on. There was chatter. I mean, w- once he became a serious candidate and then was elected, there was a lot of discussion of how someone with such extensive private business holdings would, you know, navigate these waters. Um, but so the, these lawsuits basically accuse him of so they, they claim that that he violates the um, like I said, the emoluments clause, which is a, a sort of um it had been obscure. It had never been dealt with in court leading before right. this um, a part of the of the Constitution that that bans officers of the government from, you know, receiving gifts or uh, emoluments is where the, the term comes from, is um, mm-hmm. from foreign actors, from foreign states or, you know, heads of state or, or other um, governments. It's basically an anti-foreign bribery uh, provision for for the that's written into the Constitution. So. Um, the cases claim that Trump's continued ownership of um, his private businesses, particularly his um, his big prominent D.C. hotel, uh, violate the clause because foreign governments can and do uh, spend money at those businesses. Um, the case we're talking about today is one of the three big ones that are that 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 have happened since he was elected. Um, it was a case filed by the uh, state attorneys general from Maryland and D.C., um, you know the 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 sort of difficulty of this is finding a hook for standing for anybody who wants to sue over this you know how do you prove that you were hurt enough to get into court to sue mm-hmm. the president over violating this sort of you know esoteric uh, aspect of the constitution um they say that they have the standing to sue because his hotels compete with hotels and convention centers in their area um, among other sort of reasons for why they say that they sort of were harmed by by his violation. So, what about the actual legal proceedings here? We 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 know sort of what what the general argument is about the the sort of tentacles of his business empire and in, intruding upon the political process or, or political interests. But um, what were the rulings? I know we had a ruling today, but like what 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 got us here in terms of like the actual turning of the gears? Yeah, so last summer the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal issued a very rare order called a, a writ of mandamus uh, that essentially ordered a district court to dismiss the case despite the fact that the judge in that district court had refused to allow the administration to appeal the case to to the appeals court. The appeals court basically jumped into this district court yeah. proceeding without you know the 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 standard sort of series of judgment and then appeal. Blah, blah, blah. Um, the three judge panel at the Fourth Circuit l- last summer said that um, 
that DC and Maryland clearly lacked the standing to sue over this clause and that, it, you know, it just wasn't workable, this lawsuit, and that it was so clearly not something that they were allowed to do that the judge had sort of egregiously violated, um, abused his his discretion by allowing the case to move forward. But as mm-hmm. you mentioned, and as I mentioned at the top, we got a ruling this week by the full appeals court, the en banc appeals court. Um, yeah. All 15 members of the of the Fourth Circuit weighed in, and by a 9-6 to six vote, they overturned the ruling that happened last summer. Um, it was a pretty, you know, it, we're going to get into some of the really, you know, interesting back and forth that went on with this case, and it's it, it deals with um, the Trump administration and these big questions of corruption. So obviously there was a lot of sort of heated emotions involved in it, but the actual mm-hmm. issue behind this ruling was extremely narrow. The, the, the nine... Judges who voted against the administration said, we're not weighing in on the merits of this case. We're not weighing in on, you know, how this is going to go once it's fully litigated. All we're saying is that a writ of mandamus is extremely uh, rare and reserved for the bar is very, very high. And you didn't you you didn't get over it. The quote Mm -hmm. from uh, Judge Diana Gribben Motz, quote, We recognize that the president is no ordinary petitioner, and we accord him great deference as the head of the executive branch. But Congress and the Supreme Court have severely limited our ability to grant the extraordinary relief the president seeks. So the ruling revives the case. It sets the stage for D.C. and Maryland to um, continue to seek subpoenas, which they had been doing before this all sort of shut things down. Um, and, And most likely what we'll see is the Trump administration take this case to the Supreme Court to challenge this ruling with everything that's gone on with these emolument suits all the talk about them is how they're really um they're really just some people say just political attacks because the president is not liked by some of the groups that maybe brought these suits how did the judges weigh that in what they're saying because it seems like they got a lot of back and forth about whether or not this was um some of this was just politically motivated yeah it was some um you know you'll see with courts that you know that there will sometimes be very strong language from different sides that you know the the majority and the dissent but this was uh, you know sort of shocking to read some of the stuff that was going back and forth in these in these uh opposing opinions the six dissenting judges wrote this very very scathing opinion that basically said like you're greenlighting this completely novel make it up as you go sort of lawsuit that is nakedly political and um, and, you know, that it, it sets this really dangerous precedent. The quote from that ruling was, quote, the majority is using a wholly novel and nakedly political cause of action to pave the path for a litigative assault upon this and future presidents and for an ascendant judicial supervisory role over presidential action. They continued, quote, This is a profoundly anti-democratic development pressed in a suit whose wrongfulness and transparently political character will diminish the respect to which courts are entitled when they carry out the essential functions that our cherished Constitution has assigned them. They Um, hate this suit. It was very clear. And it was very like, um, you know, they really they really called into question it, it. It transcended we disagree with you about the law. They really went and said, you are hurting the institution and you are, you are violating what you're supposed to be doing as a judge. And in a concurring opinion written by some of the majority judges, they basically said that, that look like you can, 
you can disagree with us all you want. This is this is how this case turned out. But if you're talking about dangerous precedents and harming the perception of courts, it's you that's doing it through the way that you're using this language. Um, the the quote from that opinion, quote, editorial writers, political speech writers and others are free, of course, to make a career out of accusing judges who make decisions that they dislike of bias and bad faith. But the public's confidence and trust in the integrity of the judiciary suffer greatly when judges who disagree with their colleagues' view of the law accuse those colleagues of abandoning their constitutional oath of office. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, it's, a lot, it's so much mudslinging here. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, I, this is a little bit separate than what they're talking about, about the, the political stakes of the opinion. But it, it, it strikes me as that stuff like this can bubble up, especially in a case where as we've discussed a couple of times, there is no case law. The emoluments thing has, ne- has never right. really been tested. So they have a lot of room to sort of make these kind of charges against one another, different sections of the court. It's fascinating to see. Yeah, and it was it, it th- there was so much discussion. Everyone should go read our coverage of it and read the actual opinion. But um, there was so much discussion of like, okay, well, what's the difference between a novel case and a frivolous case? Like, you know, yeah. or, or this nakedly right. political case that like, Yes, it's novel, but there are novel issues that come before courts all the time. Does that push mm-hmm. it toward this idea that it's, you know, it's so ridiculous that you need this extraordinary remedy by a higher court to sort of hijack the the the, you know, standard appellate yeah. process? It's it's very interesting. So, um uh as I mentioned, this case is almost certainly going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. We'll see where that goes. Um we should also mention that we've sort of nodded to the fact that there there are these other cases um, there was a case yeah. filed by a bunch of Congress members. Um, that case was ultimately tossed out, but uh, this is actually the second time that an appeals court has revived one of these cases. In September, the Second Circuit um, up here in New York uh, revived a similar case filed by competing businesses. I, I, you'll remember I mentioned that everyone was sort of looking for their hook of, you know, yeah. how do you get this thing into court? One of them was filed by these competing businesses. Um they similarly hit were hit with a ruling that said that they you know they lack the standing to to sue, but the Second Circuit in September um, overturned that and revived the case. So that case is pending and moving forward too. So we will be watching um, both of these cases as they move forward. All right. Well, we got emoluments, and we're going to keep playing the OG Trump scandal litigation hits here for you. We have. Um, a very strange update in the government's prosecution of uh, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. If you've not been paying attention to that, it has gone completely sideways. Um, last week, the government uh, basically decided to abandon its prosecution of Michael Flynn for um, lying to federal investigators. And this week, we saw yet another really fascinating development as the court that's hearing the case sort of took it upon itself to appoint a former prosecutor and New York federal judge to basically step in and argue against the government trying to drop this case. Fascinating developments all around. You know, I I almost had purged this whole section of, of history and cases from my mind. I thought we were done with Michael Flynn and we wouldn't be talking about this again. Yeah. So this is because this was really one of the first big scandals and I mean, prosecutions usually, to come yeah. out of this White House. So yeah. we maybe need to back up and sort of press the reset on this one. You would you would be forgiven for thinking that. A a a guilty plea usually closes the book in terms sure. of in terms of when we stop talking about something, but um, just to give you a, a brief overview, uh, Flynn was fired a few weeks into Trump's first term 
um, as he came under investigation for improper discussions that he had with Russian officials during the presidential trans, uh, uh, transition period. Um, that eventually got swept into the Mueller probe of election interference, and Flynn pled guilty to lying to federal investigators about those Russia meetings in December 2017. Um, he also affirmed that guilty plea a year later. So he basically he pled guilty two different times to lying to federal investigators. That's, that's what you need to know. But while Trump fired Flynn for his apparent dishonesty— during the whole time that this federal case is playing out, he had been making various sort of statements that suggested that Flynn was getting a raw deal, that prosecutors were really nickel and diming him on some of these charges, and he was suggesting that he might pardon him if it came to it. Um, this is all while the, while the federal case is playing out. Fast forward to just this past January in 2020, um, and Flynn moves to recant his entire guilty plea. He wants to withdraw it and plead not guilty. This all bubbled to a head last week when federal prosecutors decided to abandon the case against Flynn entirely. They did this with the backing of Attorney General William Barr. They told the D.C. court that Flynn's false statements to the FBI were not material to any viable criminal investigation. The idea being the, the line to the FBI standard is very, is very oddly parsed in jurisprudence. We don't have to get way into it. But the idea was these false statements didn't, didn't lead us to any viable sort of criminal finding, and therefore we are stopping the prosecution entirely. So, I mean, I, f- I feel like, you know, last one in the building, turn the lights off. I mean, the yeah. prosecutors don't want to bring charges anymore. The defendant has withdrawn his guilty plea. Like, what's what's left now to, to go forward on? Yeah. Um, you would, like, like you say, on its face, not too much. And I, and I just want to be clear, this... Last week, this this about face by the DOJ was hugely controversial. D- depending on which legal scholars you were reading, many said it was completely unprecedented for a case of this. It's not like the it's not like the federal government has never like changed its mind about pursuing a case. But when you consider a case of this magnitude of this kind of political scrutiny, there were some two thousand former DOJ officials wrote an open letter this week calling on Barr to resign. They basically accused him of using the DOJ as this like political weapon to serve Trump. Um, these are officials from you know, Republican and Democratic administrations both. Um, and on Wednesday um, this week, we, uh, the judge that is hearing the case, Emmett Sullivan, uh, is a D.C. federal judge, um, basically, without explaining himself too much, made his, made his sort of confusion known as well. With no one left to prosecute Flynn, with the government sort of calling off the dogs, Judge Sullivan tapped a man named John Gleason, who was a former prosecutor and a former Brooklyn federal judge, um, to basically act as a friend of the court and step in and oppose the government's dismissal attempt and continue making an active case against Flynn. Um, And much like the much like the government's about face that preceded it, a lot of people just said, you know, the judges do make third party appointments like this to represent, you know, views that they feel are not being sufficiently sure. represented in the case that that happens. But to do so here on the heels of of what the government did, I mean, people were really thrown for a loop. It was it was yeah, it's, it, it's, it feels the, the, weird. The stakes are crazy high. Yeah, because we've talked about we've even talked about on our show some of these um, judges that have to appoint someone to represent a certain interest because it comes up a lot when like um Congress was pursuing a case and the admi- and the uh, makeup of Congress changes. So maybe the leadership doesn't want to pursue that anymore or the White House will do the same thing with various agencies. Um, so 
it happens, but this context just feels really weird. Definitely. And you've already seen, I mean, when when Judge and the, the order that Judge Sullivan handed down on Wednesday is literally just a two paragraph, like, I'm doing this and I'm doing this, no like explanation, no expression of, you know, like distaste of what's going on. It's just I'm I'm appointing this as a, uh, this guy Gleason as an amicus curiae uh, for the court, and I there there will be more briefing. Um, both sides he he cites to some, some some Supreme Court precedent that says you know I have the power to do this and I'm doing this. Flynn's lawyers have immediately produced precedent that they say the judge is way out of bounds on this. We'll see what goes there. Um, Sullivan also said in that order that he is um, considering holding Flynn in contempt for committing perjury because while Flynn's, um, you know, the, 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 the alleged crime that started this all was lying to the FBI, the judge apparently thinks that because Flynn entered a guilty plea under oath to doing that and is now in some form saying, I did not do that. The judge is basically saying you were lying at some point. You're either lying the first time you said you lied to federal <laughs> investigators or you're lying now when you're saying, uh, actually, no, I didn't. Right. So there's a, you know, yeah. we were talking in the last segment about, uh, you know, uncharted waters and, and <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it just feels like a cascading series of of unprecedented things where each side is just saying, well, if you're going to drop these charges in this kind of situation, I'm going to do something similarly sort of outside the box. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. It's you can look at the Flynn case as sort of I it, it's basically like patient zero for the entire Trump Russia in political impropriety whatever you want to say so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that the case itself is now this huge political bombshell but like I say a lot of people are trying to make heads and tails of what's going on here even as we speak here today on Thursday as for what comes next Sullivan doesn't really appear to be in too much of a hurry when the DOJ said it was reversing course it basically asked for the case to be dismissed uh, with prejudice immediately Um, but in his order the judge said he will await briefing from uh, Gleason and said he will issue a scheduling order at the appropriate time Uh, we are not the only ones the entire legal community is really interested to see sort of how the court makes its way through this um, uh, uh, incredibly interesting uh, legal issue. This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300. I'm really excited to talk to today's guest, a partner at Denton's and one of the founding fathers of the legal thriller. Author Scott Trow has a new book out this month, The Last Trial, that revisits one of his most iconic characters and takes us back into the courtroom. Thanks for being with me, Scott. No, thank you, Amber. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I do want to talk about that new book, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't first discuss uh, my entry point with you and a lot of people who have law degrees like me. Everyone read 1L right before they started law school. So I just wanted to ask you about that. Uh, It feels kind of to me like it's practically mandatory reading before you head into a class to have them drill you with the Socratic method. Um, When I read it, 
it almost felt like a cautionary tale about how you could lose yourself in the law. Is that how you intend the book to be to be read? And has your opinion changed over the years since you wrote it after law school? Well, I I I have to say that I worry a little bit about the many readers over the years who have written to me and said, oh, I read 1L and it all sounded so great and so wonderful that I knew I had to go to law school. And I'm like, wow, uh, you know, sometimes people miss the point. Uh, that was the, not my experience. I felt right. terrified reading the book. <laughs> right. Well, I, um, I, I, I kid around and say, you know, that 1L was intended to discourage competition in the profession. <laughs> and um, I don't mean that either. I, I hoped that I was honest to the experience that I was having, which one, which was one, frankly, of uh, both high anxiety and high intellectual excitement. Um, and it, so it wasn't one way or the other. And all I was saying to people was, you know, if you end up going to law school, uh, bear in mind that it's an extreme experience in many ways. And at least it was for me. Uh, and that's, that's, that's neither all good nor all bad. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a remarkable uh, form of education. Uh, and uh, certainly the first year, incredibly intense. That was definitely my experience with it, too. So I think with many people, that being the first book of yours that they read, they were set up, even when they moved on to your fiction works, to know that you really tell it how it truly is in the world of the law. Um, and I've found that in a lot of your work, that you take great pains to sort of explain to your readers what's going on. You, even in the latest book, you have asides about how the Fifth Amendment works, the difference between CrimPro and CivPro, um, things about joint defense agreements even. So we get pretty thorny, but you explain it along the way. That's not stuff you always see in um, thrillers. So is this just to keep your readers up to speed with what's going on in the book? Or do you see sort of a broader um, impact you're having here about explaining really how the law works to people that might not understand it all? Well, I, I assume, uh, and I've long taken it for granted, that um, it's intense interest in the law that accounts for why, um, you know, people uh, from even outside the profession uh, We'll, you know, we'll, we'll look in at Law 360 uh, and certainly why they want to read my books. There are a lot of non-lawyers. And, uh, you know, the law is a, an institution that has a major impact on American society. Uh, and so I have always taken the time to be technically accurate. And uh, as long as I'm doing that, I want, um, I want readers... Uh, to understand. Uh, and, you know, I could contrive things so uh, I didn't refer to the Fifth Amendment at all uh, or it go through the explanations. But then inevitably, some reader writes in and says, well, I don't understand why uh, he can't assert the Fifth Amendment here. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I like to cover those bases as long as it really doesn't obstruct the storytelling. In the last trial, I really felt um, I had met, met my match 
with the uh, drug approval regulations and laws, which are so unbelievably technical. They, they, they make the tax code look like a coloring book. And uh, so I, I, I had to shorthand that a little bit. But generally speaking, uh, I assume if somebody picks, picks up a book with my name on it, uh, they're expecting a certain amount of legal education in the process. Well, let's talk more about the last trial. Um, a couple things struck me when I was reading it. And one of them was a lot of attorneys right now, a lot of people listening to the show are still working, but not in courtrooms. A lot of trials are paused because of the coronavirus pandemic. This feels a lot like a salve to that. If you've got some extra time, this one spends so much time centered in the court itself. Um, so I, I think that's a, a great recommend for the lawyers listening if they're missing being in court. But the other thing was what you brought up. This one has um, elements of complex pharmaceutical regulations. It deals with insider trading charges. Not exactly, you know, garden variety, easy stuff to put into a book. How do you pick these complex topics? And do you find that that's particularly challenging, especially this one that has so much to do with the FDA and how all of the pharma regs work? Well, you're, you're obviously you're right. It's a lot easier to write a book with a body oozing blood at the beginning, sure. uh, you know, and somebody raising uh, raising their head with their last breath and giving a clue to the murderer's identity. Um, but uh, you know, I backed into this book. Frankly, uh, I in, Sandy Stern, the main character, it appeared in Innocent. Um, which was the sequel to Presumed Innocent that came out more than a decade ago. And he was sick in that book. And people said, oh, please, please tell us Sandy is not going to die. And I thought, well, no, 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 Sandy's not going to die. And then, you know, I'd write these reply emails and sit there and think to myself, well, how is it with a guy, a guy with stage four lung cancer is not going to die? And that sort of led me to think, well, maybe some super drug comes along uh, that makes it possible for uh, people uh, with, you know, highly progressed cancers uh, to last a long, long time. And uh, so that really was the genesis of this novel. And uh, so in picking Stern, I kind of picked the topic. uh, And then uh, I then I had to reason my way through this, was probably not um, uh, entirely uh, immaterial that I have a daughter who worked at the FDA for a long time. Oh, yeah, uh, that helps a lot. Sure, And still a pharma lawyer. And I've listened to her sort of talk generally about the issues that she works with. And um, being a law geek, I always thought it was interesting. So that probably is part of what invited me into the subject as well. So you brought up Sandy Stern, who's our protagonist in this book. This one focuses directly on him. I know he's cropped up in, I think, all of your nonfiction works. He's had at least some well, All the novels, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. All the fiction works. That's right. right. Um, so this one, in essence, is a goodbye to Sandy. It's, it's aptly named The Last Trial. Mm-hmm. How did you approach that? It seems like a big task to take a beloved character and give him a send-off, and Um, how did you uh, reason through how he would be looking back on his career? Because this really is sort of um, almost a love letter to a long career in the law. Yeah. um, Great question, I think. And um, 
Stern obviously is a beloved character for me. He's sort of the first citizen of Kendall County, which is the fictional landscape that I've always uh, used. It's imaginary. Um, and, but I, I'm, you know, along with all the other kinds of accuracy I prize, chronological accuracy has always uh, been there between the books. So, you know, no way around it. Sandy Stern is 85 years old. And, uh, you know, I, I did know one 84-year-old trial lawyer who was still trying cases. But uh, at a certain point, that has to come to an end. Uh, and it provided a good opportunity to meditate on, you know, my own aging uh, and aging in general. Uh, and, you know, the way I look back on my own time in the profession uh, and, uh, you know, my, my pals, uh, you know, male and female from the U S attorney's office are starting to exit the profession. And, um, so it, you know, it, it echoed issues in my own life, uh, to be doing this. Yeah. It seemed to me in reading it that Sandy has a lot of asides where he just sort of looks at the sweep of how important the rule of law really is. And that's not necessarily a theme that's cropped up the same way in your work before, because he does spend a lot of time sort of ruminating on what his career has meant. Right. And I mean, he's, um, this is where it's important that Stern is an immigrant, which has obviously got a certain timeliness anyway, as a subject, but, uh, you know, who looks at the United States as a great country in part because it's adhered to the rule of law. Uh, and as somebody who, you know, lived through Peron in Argentina and uh, the, the various instabilities of government there, uh, he knows, he knows um, just what it means to have a society that doesn't adhere to the rule of law. And, you know, near the end of the book, he, he warns his granddaughter about that and uh, says, you know, never forget this. Um, you know, we're a great country because um, we obey the law. Yeah, um, I have sort of two final questions for you. One's pretty quick. You brought up his granddaughter in the novel, and I think I'd read elsewhere that you might be working on um, your next work, focusing on her. She's a very interesting in this book. Sort of seems like a good way to keep that stern legacy going in your writing. <laughs> I found somebody who's younger. It's <laughs> got the well, same bloodline. Well, very lines. different because in this book, for anybody who hasn't. Um, read some of the others or might not know who we're talking about. She plays essentially a, a, a PI kind of role right. in this novel. So right. that's a, a little bit different than traditionally writing about just the attorneys. Right. So, uh, yeah, Pinky, uh, sort of discovers her, um, way as a, as an investigator. Uh, she's somebody who wanted to be a cop, but flunked the drug test. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, and so she's coming to herself in uh, in the last trial, which is very heartening to her grandfather, who loves her dearly, even though neither of them quite understand why that relationship is so important to each of them. Uh, and uh, it, it is true that uh, there's always a character who runs away with the novel and who seems um, incredibly interesting. Sandy Stern was that character for me 30 years ago. and. Uh, I am writing a novel with Pinky, uh, the granddaughter at, at the center. Uh, I'm trying to do it in the first person. Uh, 
and uh, I'm, I'm a long way from giving up on that. Um, but you know, to master the voice of a 30 year old millennial um, is a little challenging. Uh, so we'll see if I can do it. Otherwise, you know, I'd, I'll have to switch to the third person. I love the plot, frankly. I, I think I'm really onto something. So I'm well, not going gonna... to. I can't wait for that uh, in, a, in a few years because she really is a scene stealer in this one. Like every section with her is really compelling. So um, I did want to ask you one last thing a little bit selfishly because I've had about Oh, 70% of a novel sitting on my computer since 2013. Um, and I'm just so impressed by how much you managed to pack in. I mean, you're a partner at Denton's. You've got a long track record of working on pro bono cases. You obviously write some of the best legal fiction that there is out there. Um, and it seems like uh, every three years or so, a new book of yours comes out. How do you pack all of this in? How do you find time for all of these things in your career? You know, for for me, it feels pretty seamless, uh, and it's never been a big stretch to um, both be a practicing lawyer and a novelist who writes about the law. Um, and they're both ways of, frankly, expressing um, both my engagement with the law and beyond that, the sort of incredibly deep and resonant meanings um, that the law has to me in terms of, you know, the peculiar contours of my own personality. Um, and, uh, you know, I discovered the law as it were as an adult. Uh, my father was one of those uh, people who hated lawyers. So I never knew them until my friends started to become lawyers. And uh, when they did, I found what they were doing just really fascinating. And, uh, you know, at some level, it's a, the law is a really important moral exercise. Uh, so, uh, you know, th these are my own personal obsessions. And so to write about them or to live them out in the case of either my life um, as a prosecutor or in the subsequent years as a defense lawyer and litigator um, is not, you know, it's not that hard. Uh, you know, and I've been practicing law part time. Uh, for decades now, so it's not it's not as hard as it as it sounds. Uh, but I've always had um, one sort of gift, which is that I can be writing, and uh, you know, most of my clients uh, have had my home number, and they even before the age of cell phones, and they would call. Uh, and they, they weren't disciplined about that. They weren't clients for long. But assuming they were, I knew when the phone rang that it was important that they talk to me now in the morning as opposed to the afternoon when I was more generally available. Uh, and I could pick up the phone. I could talk to them. I could put the phone down and go back to the sentence I was writing, even if I had stopped three or four words in. I could just pick right up with it. And that, I know, is not easy for most people. Uh, so part of, you know, the way I, reason I've been able to do it is just the peculiarity about the way my head works. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure I can mimic that, but it does sound like a little glimmer of hope for those of us that have the ideas tucked away and haven't quite come to fruition yet. Yeah, I have uh, one one word of advice for you, though, Amber, which is write. 
Um, if you if you write, you're a writer, and if you don't, you're not. And uh, the more regularly you can do it, uh, bear in mind, I wrote um, the early stages of Presumed Innocent uh, 30 minutes a day on the morning commuter train. Oh, I that love was, that. That was the only time I had. So if you ever uh, get out of your closet <laughs> and get on the subway again, uh, you know, take a few minutes while you're on your way uh, to your office to th- think about what you want to write. My co-hosts, Bill and Alex, are going to be so sad if this advice is what gets me to leave it all behind and finish my book and move on. <laughs> but Never thank you tell. for that. Um, yeah, it's been great talking to you. And just a reminder for everybody, The Last Trial is out this month, and it's a great read. All the uh, listeners should pick it up. Thanks oh, for being Amber, with thanks. me, Scott. Thank you. Our show is something offbeat. And Alex, I think you're going to take us away with this one. You know, so many COVID-19 litigation stories, when we talk about them or when anybody talks about them, we have to couch it in, much like we've discussed for much of the show today. We don't really know that this is the kind of pandemic that the world hasn't seen in over a century. Lots of very, very contested, hotly contested legal questions that don't have clarity and maybe won't have clarity for some time. We do have clarity on one very important issue this week. Strip clubs are eligible for Small Business Administration COVID relief loans. A nation rejoices, frankly. Wow. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, like you said, love to see some clarity here, but they are small businesses oftentimes. So yeah, kind of um, makes sense. Yes, yeah, so, so this is actually kind of. I mean, we we put it here in the offbeat. It's a little, it's a little silly, but this is actually a very interesting case. So, a Michigan federal judge ruled this week that the Small Business Administration, like I say, has to provide COVID nineteen relief loans to strip clubs, even though strip clubs and other categories of businesses have historically been excluded from the agency's other lending mm-hmm. programs. So basically, so were they yeah, excluded because of sort of? puritanical reasons that like this <laughs> kind of stuff shouldn't clubs. get yeah no really like were they just excluded by the nature of the business well yeah generally so so they fall under a there's a whole bunch of uh businesses that are excluded um from from normal sba loans uh, that includes like political lobbying firms also like okay. private clubs that have like membership like 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 discriminatory membership standards Cash things for like gold that. stores uh, yeah, right. <laughs> edib- edible arrangements. Uh, yeah, sure. That yeah. is just a Bill Donahue hobby horse, not liking those edible arrangements. Yep. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. That's that's that that's deep into Throwback. the pro se archives there. Um <laughs> but anyway, so the the SBA has all kinds of rules for what businesses can and cannot get uh loans uh from the agency. But when Congress passed the Paycheck Protection Program in March, it said that it would provide loans to all small businesses who met two criteria, which are applying during the appropriate covered time period and employing fewer than 500 people. Um, it, it included no other criteria than those. But when the administration wrote those wrote the regulations to implement the law, 
it basically ported over all these other sort of exclusionary standards that I had described before with its other programs. Specifically, uh, it said it would not do triple P payouts for establishments that have, quote, live performances of a purient, purient sexual nature. Sure, sure. <laughs> So that's and that's an exclusion that's like I say, it's written into other programs and they just ported it over here. And the judge who heard this case, a a, a Michigan strip club filed suit and said, hey, these other clubs are getting are getting rejected for these loans and we need them. And we don't think that's right. And the judge said, yeah, I mean, the, the, the criteria in the statute is pretty clear. Um, I mean, it doesn't make it, it. You know, if there isn't if it isn't written into the law that they that this money doesn't go to those kind of businesses, it. You know, you know, say what, say whatever you will about strip clubs, but you, they, a, a, you know, they're legal and they shouldn't be like cut <laughs> right. out from from Good the point. Well, especially, I mean, it is a pandemic where all of these people are out of work and these businesses are going to have to be continue to be shut down while yeah. we're all social distancing and all of that. So, I mean, it, it is a business that pays people's you know paychecks so they can get along in life. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's hard is... to just exclude them entirely. Well, and this is right at the heart of the opinion, too, that the, the judge is a man named Matthew Leitman, or Leitman, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but anyway, he wrote, um, he, he wrote about the extraordinary nature of these circumstances, Amber. He wrote, quote, while Congress may have once been willing to permit the SBA to exclude these biz- businesses from its lending programs, that willingness evaporated when the COVID-19 pandemic destroyed the economy and threw tens of millions of Americans out of work. So he's very clear um, about the special sort of circumstance that's facing not just the nation's strip clubs, uh, other, you know, like you say, otherwise legal dens of iniquity or whatever. Um, but, you know, these are extraordinary times and they call for these kinds of measures. It's very interesting. So, you know, you can't really go to a strip club right now, which um, is sad, I suppose. Um, but sad, you know, for, sad for some. Yes, sad for some. Um, and good, good for others. One good for argue. others. Uh, strip clubs are lands of contrasts, I guess. Um, and uh, but with 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 a ruling like this, it increases the chances that you might be able to go once things reopen. Um, wanted to close with a with another quote from the judge here uh, that gets at the at the um, unique times in which we live. Defendants are correct that it would ordinarily be absurd to conclude that Congress meant to provide financial assistance to, among others, certain sexually oriented businesses and private clubs that discriminate. But these are no ordinary times, and the PPP is no ordinary legislation. So, there you have it. The SBA is making it rain. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That is a perfect way to end this Under the order of a federal judge, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for bringing that story, Alex. Thank you. And for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest this week was Scott Tarot and our contributing reporters, Haley Knoth and Corey Atkinson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. And if you like our show, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help other people find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week. This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300.